0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Winston Ibrahim, founder and CEO of Hydros. Uh, Winston, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank
1: you, Michael. It's my pleasure.
0: To begin with, I wonder if we could just start with a simple question: What inspired you, and what inspired the idea behind Hydros?
1: So. The idea behind Hydros that my co-founders and I had was really one about the ridiculousness of the consumption of bottled water. And it's really funny because over the last thirty years it's become effectively a social stigma to drink water out of the tap. And there's been a huge multi-billion dollar growth in the bottled water industry, which is just astounding that anybody would buy so much of this inherently, you know, available product in a way that's so wasteful from a monetary perspective and from an environmental perspective. So the thought to us was there was no viable filtering vessel on the go. There was a huge demand for bottled water. And at the same time, we had observed the growth of home filtration systems like Brita. And the idea struck if we create a actually functional and easy to use and beautiful product that could be priced at a comparable price, we might have a very good business.
0: So, uh, since you mentioned the huge and growing market, what, what size are we talking about? So the
1: bottled water market is easily in the three to five billion dollar a year category just in the U.S. and the market for home filtration is close to a billion dollars. Brita alone does six hundred million dollars in sales. And Brita and its filters are the number one selling products in the house sections both Target and Costco and Amazon.com, which is just insane.
0: So if you have such a dominant player like Brita already as an incumbent in the market, what's the opportunity for disruption that you saw uh, in this space?
1: So Brita, particularly where it comes to their portable vessels, is renowned for their poor design and their poor user experience. It's a very awkward to use product. The pricing is awkward. The products were so bad that they actually had a target recall a few years ago because they were cutting the mouths of young kids. And these are all things that we observed 10 years ago, just that these products were not particularly well designed and kind of done as an afterthought to the core business of Brita. So our desire was to really execute well and develop proprietary technology and really go deep with industry experts who understood consumer goods products and try and create something very proprietary and very scalable. And our first products that were actually developed out of Warden and Advanced Hall made some first steps towards that. And now we're on the brink of taking it hopefully to the next level.
0: Could you tell me a little bit about your journey so far and how you're at the brink of your next, uh, at at the next level of takeoff?
1: Sure. So this has been a very long journey. My uh, co-founders and I created this business back in 2009. And we were fortunate enough to get a spot in the Warden Warden Venture Incubation Facility Advance Hall. Uh, We were actually sitting next to the co-founders of Warby Parker while we were developing this Mm -hmm. idea. And it was a very raw idea. None of us had any real experience when it came to taking products to market. We had all anticipated working in finance. One of my co-founders was an engineer from the University of Pennsylvania and a Warden graduate. So we had a very disparate background, and with complementary skills, we were able to kind of bootstrap our way into creating our first product, which, to our surprise, did $500,000 in sales very quickly. And it was on the back of that that we started to get press, that we started accidentally to get distribution. Almost without trying, we suddenly ended up with 150 points of retail in Whole Foods market, just completely by accident when Whole Foods buyers approached us. We were able to get astoundingly talented people to join us on our board of directors. So we're very fortunate to this day to have Shazi Visram, the founder and CEO of Happy Family, which is the largest organic baby food company in America, and she sold the company to Danone three years ago for $400 million, is still running the business to this day. We have a gentleman, Alan Sheriff, who used to run investment banking for Credit Suisse First Boston, and now has the number one IP advisory firm in the country who it took Snapchat public, who took Canadian Goose public. So we've really struck a nerve with some serious business professionals with even our early products. Now, as with a lot of startups, things can happen with people throughout the journey and sometimes people lose interest and you know, products have issues, and our second generation product, while selling quite well, had a lot of, you know, development challenges and had an inherently unsustainable cost structure. Mm-hmm. So my co founders and I you know, did a little bit of negotiations and I bought them out mm-hmm. and we hired a brand new team of professional industry operators, hired the number one consumer products development firm in the country, if not the world, Nottingham Spurk Design. Mm-hmm. And Nottingham Spurk is responsible for creating over fifty billion dollars worth of consumer products. Mm-hmm. They invented the Swiffer, the Dirt Devil, mm-hmm. the Spin Brush. Mm-hmm. Their client companies have more than a thousand patents. More patents commercialized in this area than anybody since Thomas Edison. (laughs) So we went to them after I did this buyout and presented them with our idea and some of our initial products. And we've been working with them over the last two and a half years. And what's unique about Nottingham Spurk is that they won't just do a design. They will incorporate engineers. They'll incorporate sourcing experts and they'll Mm -hmm. think about scalability of cost Mm -hmm. because as good as the ideas were in our initial products. They were actually lacking in terms of their development execution. We were making our initial products in eight different facilities Mm. around the Northeast Mm. in the U.S. Mm. Now we're going to be making our new product in one facility in China. The cost Mm. on our filters alone went down from $5.50 to (laughs) (laughs) $0.50. So economies of scale are going to work very much in our favor here. Right,
0: right. Now, how's uh, when you have such a big incumbent dominating the market uh, your strategy is is very crucial uh, mm-hmm. what is going to be your strategy to build out uh, uh, the, the sales and marketing side of your product it seems like you've got the mm-hmm. manufacturing part figured out mm-hmm. with China and so on but mm-hmm. how, how will you make a dent in the market
1: so our hope to make a dent in the market is really to target you know, unique online sales initially and leverage an influencer market Mm. Uh, just based on the endogenous response to our past products where again, with very little effort or expertise, we had a multifold reaping of our reward just on, you know, the inherent, you know, push from the product. We think that there's a very big market opportunity. So we've hired some of the top marketing experts, we've hired a very good professional PR firm, BAM Communications, Mm -hmm. and they've helped us develop a whole network of people who can really help to drive early consumer adoption of Mm -hmm. products like ours. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting thing about these products goes back to our manufacturing and how seamless we are and to the uniqueness of our fast-flow technology because that technology inherently reduces our costs, which means that unlike a lot of the other competitors in the market, a lot of the other people who had attempted to compete against Brita, we can actually match them on price. Mm. And that, mm. at a mass market retailer like a Target, like a Costco, like a Walmart, is extremely important. What it means that you can do is you can run sales promotions neck on neck. Right. Nobody has ever been able to really do that before and you have a patent on the technology we have multiple patents, patents on the technology. technology we have dozens of patents pending and we have a few granted patents and you know several of those run back to our initial filings done at Warden in 2009 and 2010
0: right now uh, you you mentioned you have a very you know uh, strong board and that that's great uh, any For any startup, uh, funding is very crucial. Yes. Uh, how did you go about raising capital? How much did you raise? And, and what were some of the challenges involved?
1: Yeah, so it's challenging early on when you're a young and inexperienced team to raise money. Uh, I'd say it was just relentlessly pushing the idea. You know, there's so many people who will tell you no? And I think it's really you know, kind of a trope, but it's true when you're in that situation to just keep on trying and keep on trying and keep on trying. And obviously we were lucky to be able to leverage you know, the credibility of an institution like Warden, which had given us this prize and some money to start up. And that was able, combined with our relentlessness and the you know, initial success that we had had, to open doors with very unique individuals who saw the opportunity with us. And just proving out that initial opportunity was critical in order to continue our access to capital to this date. All of our money has been angel money and we've been very, very, very careful to only work with investors who are aligned spiritually with our interests and our long-term plan. I think I've seen a lot of my entrepreneur friends take deals that they've later regretted because they seem very good, but they were from people who are not really aligned with them. I think we've been astoundingly lucky to have access to really great people who had the highest ethics and really believe in the long term interests of this company? Uh,
0: are you able to say how much money you raised, and or we've we've raised about four to five million dollars. Great, uh, and and like raising capital, the other very important consideration is your leadership team. Uh, how did you go about assembling your team uh, after the buyout, and and what did you look for in that initial team?
1: Yeah, uh, it it was honestly complete chaos after this buyout, especially since, you know, I was only, you know, one of, you know, three people who had previously been running this company and now I was suddenly inheriting all of those challenges onto my shoulders alone. Uh, And it was definitely a strong challenge. I think a mitigating factor was, you know, the fact that I could rely on so many well-entrenched people Mm. as advisors and board members and to access talent so i was very fortunate to find my current coo john holland through one of those sources in the natural products industry and john is a 40-year veteran Mm -hmm. of the industry he used to run sales to the u.s for nestle waters Mm -hmm. he was a senior executive at coca-cola and was at one point the coo of sig usa sig was at one point, the largest player in the reusable hydration category, they did a hundred million dollars in sales on these gorgeous stainless steel bottles right. and aluminum bottles 10 years ago. Mm. And unfortunately, there were some issues with the company's leadership and John's former boss. But John is an incredible resource to our business. Mm. Virtually everything that's done on the operational sides or structuring sales programs is all done by him. And I would say the real challenge in these types of situations is not necessarily even finding the right people, it's being open to sharing authority with people like that. Entrepreneurs, That's right. by their very instinct, mm. are doers who want to do everything according to their own wishes and whims. Mm. And it takes a lot of hard work and self-work to be able to step out of that, to really think strategically and globally on how you can offer the most value to your business. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that I needed the support of seasoned executives. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very, very lucky to find somebody like John Holland to help co-pilot this.
0: Uh, What do you see as, since you're getting ready for the next phase of your growth, uh, what do you see as the biggest risks that you might face? And how would you think about overcoming them? The biggest risk that we face
1: is... Exactly what we were discussing a few moments ago, the fact that we're going up against a well-entrenched dominant incumbent. Right. And that's not something that can be taken lightly. Brita has been around for 30 years. They have a track record of hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and a penetration into you know, millions of households in this country and around the world. So really what we're going to have to do is go over the top in terms of our marketing and really be able to offer the consumer more bang for the buck.
0: Mm.
1: What's very lucky, again, is the fact that we can lean on such great and nimble manufacturing, on such great design and inherent technology, which has really been beneficial. Brita itself has actually been very helpful to us recently because they just launched a fast-flow tech product as well, and for whatever reason, they weren't able to make their product work like ours. To use a Brita fast-flow product, you fill the vessel with unfiltered water and filter while you're pouring out of it while holding it at a 90 degree angle, which has not exactly gotten them a lot of points from a consumer usability perspective. So they've done a really good job for us, though, on advertising the benefits of fast flow. (laughs) In fact, right now, if you go to Target three blocks from here, you will find video displays talking about Brita fast flow. Interesting. (laughs) So sometimes things like that could be an advantage. Basically, what they're doing is paving the way for us in the minds of consumers. Fast flow is important. To the minds of buyers of stores, fast flow is important. So for us now, in a few months, to approach those same retail buyers and say, this product has already, you know, been demonstrated in terms of its value proposition. Brita is doing it for us, but we can do it better. We can do it part of an ecosystem, mm-hmm. and we can do it in a way that will really be useful to your consumer. We can also do it in a way where it'll take up less points of room per square inch of shelf space versus our competitors because we have so much less material, we can pack out more product per square inch of shelf space, thus we can make you more money as a retailer.
0: The other big challenge I would imagine, especially if you when you go up against such a dominant incumbent, is how do you build your brand? Yes. What, yes. How, what are you thinking about? What, what What's your idea on how will you build a hydros brand?
1: So branding and marketing is very, very, very important to us. Uh, and we were able to engage a top-tier firm in the industry that had worked with a number of other top clients, Suja Juice which is a juice cleanse company that a Coca-Cola just acquired. It's another one of their clients. So we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on getting our packaging right, all of our materials right, everything on our font right. And that was all done with the mindset of how we can create something that's resonant with the consumer that ties in. Another very key attribute that we're trying to display is our modernity as a brand, as a product. Mm -hmm. Brita may be established, but our argument is that very much like Gillette with Dollar Shave Club is an old and somewhat tired product that doesn't really excite the consumer, especially for a millennial consumer that's increasingly driving consumption of these products. We really want to appeal on a basis of our sexiness as a brand. And we really put that thought endogenously into the design and shape of our products. I think it's very clear if you compare our products to a comparable size and priced Brita, one really stands out on the shelf in an eye-catching way that will really resonate with a younger consumer.
0: Uh, What would you say have been your biggest successes so far?
1: Our biggest successes in hydros?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think our
1: biggest success, our biggest success was in being very, very, very patient in putting together, you know, the right attributes of this product uh, and waiting and biding our time. And, you know, it's very, very, very hard as an entrepreneur to sit back and let a development process take its full course. It's, you know, gut-wrenchingly tough to have to sit there for years and years and years and go through engineering meetings and design meetings and sourcing meetings. And we've had a lot of challenges in this business. I mean, we, you know, had a manufacturing partner last year who we were supposed to work with who ended up not being a viable partner. In fact, we just literally two weeks ago were in federal court with this, you know, Former partner of ours, and all of this is a matter of public record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, as of August 10th, we were, you know, awarded a judgment uh, mm-hmm. against this, uh, you know, former partner of ours. So that delayed us a year. So it's really been hard to be that patient, but I think the end product has really been worth it. And we've seen a few other entrants to this space who have attempted to come out with sub uh, substandard product faster and cover up their tracks with good marketing, and it hasn't worked.
0: Yeah now uh we talked about successes uh what what would you say have been your biggest mistake so far and what did you learn from them
1: i think the biggest mistake that i've had is in not trusting my instincts mm-hmm. about situations that seem too good to be true and you know i have had you know that be applied in terms of you know f- potential funding partners i've had that applied in terms of, you know, employees who I had hired and development firms that I've hired where something was, you know, a little bit off. For for example with this, you know, former production partner of ours, there was something a little bit off in the way that they handled themselves and their promises were just a little too good to be true. And we really really wanted to believe them and, mm. you know, we sunk into that trap of, you know, going, you know, a little bit too far, not being, you know, kind of diligent enough. So I would say, you know, rushing to do something and thinking that it'll just work out, ignoring that voice inside of your head that has a few, you know, doubts is very, very, very much our biggest mistake. And I would caution any entrepreneur from ignoring them casually. It's better
0: to do something slowly and do it right. Right. And what's the biggest lesson you have learned from from those mistakes?
1: The biggest lesson is to learn to, you know, be patient and do something right to really you know, surround yourself with the best in class team of people and we were very fortunate to be able to afford these people. Nottingham Spurk design is not cheap right. uh, and neither are any of the other professionals we have. Neither you know, are the rest of the people on my team but it's really you know, doing that and be patient and thinking really like a chef You know, your job as an entrepreneur is not to do everything. It's to set the stage, to assemble all the best ingredients and put them into, you know, the same nexus of environment where they can interact with each other and to harvest what comes from that. Because what we have now is so, so, so different from what we had before. And I could never have done it on my own.
0: Uh, One last question. If you were to look five years out, uh, where would you like Hydrus to be?
1: In five years, I would like Hydros to be a household name and a product that everybody uses in one sense or the other. We are very keen on creating an ecosystem of products that can fit every budget, every usage case. So we're initially launching with these three vessels, a bottle, a pitcher, and a carafe, and they're very price friendly. Our bottle is $20, our carafe is $22, our pitcher is around $30, so very scalable. Next, we'll be launching glass products Mm -hmm. as well, because we know there's so much demand Mm -hmm. in that category. So we would like to continue to expand into different adjacencies in hydration, leveraging our dominant attributes in filtration, but also expanding on other elements in the marketplace. And this is a very accretive category. When we first started this business 10 years ago, there wasn't one single liquidity event that we can point to. In Mm -hmm. the last four or five years, there's been five or six major liquidity events, hundreds of millions of dollars, and 6x multiples, 5x multiples in this category. I'd say it's not my hope to really sell this business and we're very fortunate, you know, in terms of, you know, how we can leverage our, you know, cap table and our finances and our margins to, you know, really hope that that's something that we can stave off. We want to continue to focus relentlessly on quality as well as on price because what we're trying to create is something that can really be offered and used by everybody.
0: Winston, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Of course. My pleasure, Nicole. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.